Well, kia ora and thank you for tuning into today's episode of the Coach's Corner podcast. Today we're joined by some of the best in the business around skill acquisition. Uh, we're joined by Sarah-Kate Miller from um, UC and Susan Dawson, who's currently over in uh, Canberra coaching over there. So Sarah-Kate is a lecturer at the University of Canterbury teaching the next generation of coaches. And as I mentioned, Susan is applying her skills and trades over the across the ditch over in Oz, um, and she's spent a bit of time coaching at FPC and in the Super W competition over there. So welcome in today, team. How are we? Good, kia ora. Thank you. Well, thank you. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the time that you guys um, have taken to jump on. I guess the way that we'd like to frame up our, uh, our podcast and talking or letting our listeners um, get a good understanding is around your journey how like how do you get into coaching and in your interests and so Skate, I'll start off with you what was it that got you interested in skill acquisition and how do you get into I guess diving deep and becoming a, a lifetime learner of it and now lecturing it about it as a job yeah cool cheers Kia ora, Ricky. Thanks for having me here this morning um so my background's in coaching so passionately a coach I still coach now um, started off actually coaching people with disabilities uh, was my original background and then um, kept working in the space of rowing and that went on for a long time and then I ended up running a big rowing club in the UK and started realising that I needed to spend more time with the coaches and to try and get the best out of our rowers in the club and so started branching into the space of coach development and then that led into uh, more learning to my master's and then my, my PhD and really loving the area around skill acquisition and the whole learning environment. So while skill acquisition is an element of sports science, it's, it's really pedagogy. It's about learning design um, and that is, that, that's what our job is as coaches. And so um, I've worked out of rowing for a long time now, so I've worked across a number of sports, uh, particularly supporting coaches um, across netball, uh, across football, a little bit with rugby. So um, that's why I've got Susan here with me today to try and help bring in some of the, the rugby context. Um, and really, I start to look at how do we influence or how do we design the learning environment to, to really create change in our players um, implicitly? Because we know that trying to tell people to move in a certain way um, a is a very clumsy way of trying to get someone to change how they move. I, it doesn't always happen or it might be quite slow, but also when we do quite a prescriptive telling people how to move, that often breaks down under physiological pressure and psychological pressure. So that sounds like the last 10 minutes of the 80 minutes of a game um, when everyone's pretty tired and, and looking at the scoreboard. So um that really got me into looking at how can we do things better um, and how can we better represent the demands of the game in our, in our training environment. So that's a little bit about me. And I've been in Auckland for the last 15 years, but now down here at UC and, and really enjoying uh, working with the, with the students and, and coaches around Canterbury. Yeah, I know that's that's awesome. And hopefully we can dive in a little bit more around your um, around your co rowing coaching stuff. It'll be cool to hear um, around around that and so for you Susan what got you so obviously a player now converted from into a coach and so what got you so interested around coaching 
Yeah, thank you. Um, it's funny, uh, you know, I played my last game of rugby in 2002, so I don't know if I'm still relevant as a, a player, really, but um, I played all my rugby in Northland, and then after World Cup in Spain, I moved further north up to Monganui, and um, my kids were born up there, and I probably honestly was waiting to get back uh, into rugby and then we moved back down into Whangarei in 2018 had an opportunity to start um, getting involved with Scott Collins at the time was at Northland and he was instrumental in sort of the resurgence of the women's game um, that had been fairly dormant apart from the outstanding work that the um, that the Māori rugby was doing up in Northland with um, relevant people so yeah, um, jump back in, pretty useless, uh, to be honest. I had to scramble to keep, get back um, into, like, terminology and the changes of the game. And, it, I mean, it's the same, but it's it's different, you know, um, 16 years later. So I used to just jump in and try and uh, get to anything that I could, just soak up the learning as much as I can. And that's probably triggered um, my love of learning Um especially with rugby being the vehicle for that, um, which is why really I'm ending up here today. So it's been a bit of a journey. Oh, that's cool. And have you always had that kind of that appetite for learning and and wanting to kind of... Uh, I think it was just um, as a as a player, and I mean, I suppose I've been an athlete my whole lot. I used to, I used to row, which is not, not great, but... Um, it taught me how to train. That's one thing for sure. Um, I think um, no, knowing what I know now, then I was motivated by failure. So my my whole premise around learning and training and growing as a player was to be that fit that they couldn't leave, leave me out. Yeah. And so the learning side of things, I actually found very challenging. So this style of um, implicit learning has really ticked all the boxes for me because I couldn't learn that well off paper and um, by people telling me what to do, I had to just go out there and try and do it. Yeah. And it's an interesting, interesting situation that now as a coach, I've only ever been coached by men. And so it's an interesting um, dynamic now that my style of coaching whether it's more feminine or not, I'm not too sure, but it's a lot more um, relational-based. But in saying that, that's the modern style of coaching anyway. So it's just, yeah, it's been really interesting. Oh, yeah, I know. That's cool. I might, I, we might come back and come back to that. So we might put a pin into that because I reckon a lot of it will be cool to kind of have a chat around um, around your experience around only being coached by men because a lot of our coaching is done well, for our coaches out there listening in, it's probably done by who used to be our coach. Um, so our role model behavior is based on who who were who were our coaches beforehand. And so um we yeah, might 100%. Hopefully yep, come, 100%. come back to that. And so for everybody tuning in today, our conversation is around skill acquisition. Um and I guess for me as as a coach, it's one of those really important topics to understand like how do we get our athletes to be better at um, executing a skill and and what that all takes and so skate can you take us through I guess what is skill acquisition 
to you and and what do you I guess teach the likes of Susan and the rest of your students around it and stuff yeah thanks Ricky um if you look at yeah skill acquisition it's it, how do we try and help our athletes to be able to perform consistently in um in a performance environment and really that, that comes down to their ability to adapt to what is happening in front of them so your, your top skilled performers are able to play in whatever environment um, is in front of them and be able to perform those skills with quite a high level of consistency now that's quite different from just repeating the same movement it's all about their ability to be adaptive so I think um, you know if we look at the fundamentals of knowing how someone learned something. And I, you know, I encourage the listeners here for a moment to have a think. If you think when you're, you're coaching your players, how do I know, yep, they've got it, you know? And so if you have a think about that for a moment, you know, often people say, oh, they're able to repeat that movement. Um, I do get a lot of coaches when I ask this question say that the players are able to tell me what they're doing or repeat back what they're doing and why. Um, but actually there's not the evidence to show that if someone can tell you that they can move in a certain way, they can actually do that movement. There's no way I'm going to do a somersault dive off a 10 metre platform. You know, I can tell you all about it, not a heck of chance that I'm going to get up there and do that. So I think we have to be really clear about what are the determinants of someone's learned something. And there is, there's two things to it. There's one is can they repeat that movement? So if you've shown someone how to do, say, a spiral pass, can they repeat that movement again? And particularly, is there a period of time between assessing that movement? So rather than, okay, they could do two spiral passes, yep, cool, they've got it, but actually could they do it at the end of the session when, or could they do it next week? So there's a, there's a time element to the repeatability tests. But the key one really, and that's where we get to the crux of skill acquisition, is can they transfer that skill? And too often I see coaches um, just really working on the repeatability of a movement and not actually looking at the transfer. And so when I say transfer is, can they do that, say, spiral pass in different situations? I'm on the run, the pass is longer, the ball might be wet, I've had to do a dodge before I've passed. All those things are what I mean by transfer. Yeah. Um, and so if in people's planning, if they take one thing away today, is how do I plan for people to be adaptive and transfer their skill in different situations? then I've got to set up those situations in my training so they are able to learn to transfer skills, not just repeat a movement. Yeah. What's really cool about that is that um, well, what you've well, real cool impact statement that you just said there is around them being able to repeat around how they can perform a skill or perform like I need to make sure if we're talking about use your spiral pass example, if I can turn my thumb over um, or roll my hand over, I'm going to get a spiral pass. And you're like, yeah, cool. That that could be something that you can do. But then when you actually watch that play out in action, they're not able to do what they're saying that they're able to do. In that repeat movement piece that you're talking about, can you explain that a little bit more around just so that our coaches get a, good understanding around the difference between repeat movement and the actual transfer of skill? Yeah, so the, if you're trying to, like in, when we test whether someone's learned a skill, there's the test for repeatability, can they do that movement again? And then there's the transfer, can they do that movement in a different context? 
So that's the difference between those two words. There's nothing in the literature that shows that you need to be able to repeat movements lots and lots of times before you try and transfer it. In fact, I probably argue the, the opposite. And, and let's stick with the spiral pass example is um, often I see, and this is, um, I'm not generalizing to everybody, but I have seen, you know, rows of rugby players in a row, like doing a wave of passing a ball down the line, you know, where they're called passing waves. I'm, I'm not too sure the technical term, but they're standing in lines and they're passing a ball. And sometimes they might be jogging slowly while they're passing, or sometimes they might be running. But you're missing the real key information. And that's probably the thing around modern skill acquisition is understanding why people move. And they, they move based on what the environment is in front of them rather than based on um, telling someone how to move. So let's take it out of rugby for a moment. If you think about crossing a major intersection in your in your city, whether that be um, Colombo Street, you know, Christchurch or, or Queen Street in Auckland, people get across that intersection a lot of different ways. They don't get there at the end with like a broken nose or, or a sore arm because I've walked into someone. They've constantly adjusted to all those people walking in front of them and beside them. And we do that inherently as, as humans really well. And so if we think about why people move the way they do in rugby, it's predominantly because of defenders, who's in front of them, and then also their teammates and also where they're trying to go in terms of the try line or try to avoid the touch line or whatever it is. So keeping people in the environment is really cool, is really so key. And it's not about just playing games, right? Because actually, if I've got a defender in front of me and I've got the ball passing it to my mate, that's really, that's quite complex for some people, you know, especially if that defender's running in a lot of speed and I'm still trying to learn the spiral pass. But if I had, say, another um group of people doing rugby waves coming towards me and I was going towards them so they're sort of crossing over I'm having to decide on when I'm going to pass that ball the speed I'm going to pass it the timing I'm going to pass it and the angle and they are fundamental things to passing a ball speed of pass time of pass angle of pass force of pass and that'll all happen for free if I'm doing a passing wave to my left and if someone's coming in front of me I might have to drop that ball a little bit quicker or hold it up because someone's passing in front of me. And so they're doing all those things implicitly without having to be told, you know, pass it quicker, keep your hands up or whatever, because they're, they're adjusting to the environment. Yeah. I really love what you said there around keeping people in the environment, because I think that's that's a really key message and it takes away from that repeated movement. And I think a lot of our coaches um probably go off loosely go off that Anders Ericsson model around that 10,000 hours and you got to get your reps in if you do this you're going to be super proficient or become an expert at it but actually that's not quite right and in that sense it's a little bit washed down of what what Ericsson was trying to get out of it right because it's not what you're saying is we need to make it a dynamic environment with lots of or lots of different things coming at them so that they can make that skill transferable to the, to the game. And then as a coach, it's not just us standing back and watching whether or not they can stand still and throw a spiral pass. Cool. That looks awesome. But can they do that under the, under, under pressure? Can they do it while running all that type of stuff? That's when we can see that learning actually starting to take place and cement itself. 
Yeah, for sure. And there's there's not the literature to, to support the 10,000 hours rule, but there is still the literature that will support practice is still the most dominant feature of being successful. You have to have a high volume of practice. What differentiates, though, our experts is a couple of things. One is unstructured um, time and you know, play. So I won't go down that track today, but you know that's your sort of backyard footy, playing force back, all those sorts of things without being structurally coached. We know that makes a difference in how well players go on. But the other part is the quality of the coaching. So if I'm going to do 20 passes today, there's got to be variability in different types of passes. So because we're thinking about our players on the field, they're constantly having to adapt. So these 20 passes need to be different. So we talk about repetition without repetition and skill acquisition. So how do we have, yes, we might have lots of reps, but it's not repeating the same movement over and over again. In fact, if you see one of your players starting to repeat the same um, solution, that's when we've got to put a different constraint in or a different problem or change things so they're actually having to adapt. Yeah. And that's often where you see people fall down they might practice backline moves and repeat them and repeat them and then suddenly you get a defensive team coming in and they can't do that play but they try and do it and then it gets intercepted or dropped or something like that because they're not playing what's in front of them, they're trying to remember some pattern. Yeah, no, that's, that's an awesome point. And Susan, just from you real quickly, or not quickly, as take as long as you want, but we've only got a, a certain amount of time that we can record for. But um, you've obviously coached what I think is super interesting. You've obviously coached um, men's premier team, you've coached FPC, and you're doing your Super W stuff. So you've probably seen a whole range of like different abilities, right? And so you've probably, at FPC, you've probably had some girls that have come to you that have been kind of first or second year to actually playing rugby. You've had men that have been playing it since they've been, at, or men and women that have been playing it since they're the age of, you know, seven or eight. And then you're at the elite level with Super W stuff. How have you managed to, like, kind of coach that skill acquisition stuff in those different environments? And what are some of the um, lessons you've learned along the way? I mean, that's, you know, 100% relevant, what you're saying. You know, we've got black ferns playing at club level against girls, you know, that are just brand new. And and in FPC as well, you've got that, that huge variety. And um, it's really not until delving into this type of work and discussing actually with the, um, an Irish guy over in Aussie here at the moment that's doing his PhD around contact um, with in women's sport that I've really thought about it too much. And what what I've landed on is, is that the drills and, sorry, the activities <laughs> and things that I'm um, designing need to be scalable. So, for example, if, if we're working on tracking and you know going into the tackle and things like that a key learning was that the same grid needs to be able to be relevant and variable enough for every level but also for position so previously I would have just done one-on-one -on -one tackles in a in a sort of narrow-ish type grid it's controlled but it's still highly variable because they can step either way or do whatever they want it's one-on-one -on -one and they still have to score the try and you know all those sort of things so they're going to jump up and go but now I'm I'm going to change that so that they can choose where they come into the grid so the example I did was with a with a fullback 
like she she doesn't do the close contact work as much as as say my tight forwards would so for her she can nominate to go 15 meters out and then be tracking across to to meet someone which is her key skill and it doesn't have to be high contact it can still you know, like she can still execute the the tackle but not necessarily in high contact so it's it's having the awareness of where people are at and this is hard right like the other day you know coaching you know um, with a grammar um first 15 over here as well and I've got 20 boys and I was on my own and it's like oh man there's there's rec boys in here there's boys that have never played and like how am I going to make this this relevant and so which isn't unusual we all have to do that at, at whatever level and it was the same with you know, premier men's side, I had FPC, I mean, sorry, NPC, Northland, um, and super men with, with, with the rest of us normal people. So it was um, always that balancing act, but always coming back to that individual person and what they needing at that time, and then growing that into a scalable training session. Yeah, I think that's a really cool thing that you did there around um, defining the difference or being able to create your your activity to help to be similar for everybody or everybody's learning that similar skill right but the environment that their position is in is completely different so like our type fives are generally closer to to each other in those contact zones versus our fullback are generally doing a lot of chase down tackles or or side-on tackles but that skill set around tracking and then initiating that contact is is the same and so it is that different but same and I that's that's a really cool point because we do get carried away around we everybody will start doing out their knee tackling stuff and that everybody will get in backs and forwards will get in and do the same contact ruck drill and and all that all those things but yet it's not relevant to everybody really like I don't see how like if we imagine watching an All Blacks game, how many actual cleanouts do you see Aaron Smith having to actually do? I think I've only ever seen him do maybe ten or fifteen in his whole career, potentially. Type thing, and yeah, yeah. it's halfbacks don't clean rucks, right? They kind of push everybody and marshal that type of thing. So, do they need to be doing clean cleaning rucks or or anything like that? So, um, mm -hmm. that's really that's really mm -hmm. cool. And so, skates. Just kind of throw it back to you. What are some key factors coaches should be aware of um, to contribute to kind of effective skill acquisition and development? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Ricky. And I think I was just thinking about um, Susan's tackling example because um, so probably the listeners don't know is Susan is part of um, a core knowledge group working with high performance sport at the moment. And through that funding, have supported her to do this course uh, through UC this semester. So, her and I have had some interesting chats about tackling in particular. And it comes back to my point about um, the importance of keeping people in the training environment, um, because based on what a defender or your own teammates are doing, is going to determine what actions you're then going to take. And so, the, the, the technical term is called perception action coupling. So what you perceive either often it's mostly visual, but it's also, you know, like haptic and sound um, are your other key ones, obviously less with the, the taste and the and the, the smell. But 
what you perceive, what information you pick up is going to determine, therefore, what action you're going to take. And those two things are locked together. And so we've talked a lot about tackling, Susan and I, because if people don't pick up the speed, able to track my speed to their speed, um, then I'm not going to get myself into the right position to be able to to make a tackle. And that's where often you sometimes see tackles come in from the wrong angle or arm thrown out to the side or those sorts of things. And so tied in with keeping people in the environment, it's because then my actions are tied to what's happening in, in front of me. So that's a, a really key principle um, for the coaches who are listening is how do I keep people there, but it's also keeping key actions that they are doing. It's not just about having lots of people around, but what are some of the, the key um, uh, information, like the speed that, that that person's running at or the angle that they're running at is a key bit of information for a defender to be able to, to make that tackle. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about something called representative design. So how well does what I'm doing in training represent what is happening in the game. Now, that doesn't mean we just play games at training and play full contact 15 aside. That's not what I'm saying. There is definitely an element of, of games, but it's going, well, what is the key information, i.e. Um, someone running with the ball, different angles that they're running on, different speeds, because just running straight up and hitting a tackle bag, that's, that's not actually keeping that perception action cut pulled together because I don't have to perceive the speed that they're traveling at. I don't have to make any of those decisions. I'm just being told, run at the tackle bag. And in fact, how often do we make a tackle on that angle? You know, how it's not helping the players learn to adjust. So I guess a bit of a long-winded answer to you, but it's trying to think, what is representative in the performance environment? And therefore, how do I keep elements of that in my training? And I might purposefully not have some things in today, like I might not be getting them to tackle, but they are doing a two-handed touch. Okay, and, and I think that's a particularly important skill because if I can do a two-handed touch on someone, then I've probably got my body in the right position to be able to then wrap arms and do a tackle. But if I can't actually pick up the speed that person's running at and do a two-handed touch, then that's actually more of the problem, not my tackle technique. And so if we've all the time got people in our environment um, and it doesn't have to be full on contact, you know, like my passing waves example, there was no opposition, but there were people in my way and I had to make decisions about it or um, yeah, it's, so it doesn't have to necessarily be a game, but say if I'm going to be doing some sort of running thing, how am I dodging people? How am I making those decisions all the time? Yeah. And you, Earlier, you talked around how like environment is part is part of the um, is part of skill acquisition. Are there any other components that we that coaches need to be aware of that um, that make up the skill skill acquisition or effective skill acquisition? Well, if you look about why our rugby players move the way they do, we could sort of break it down into three areas, which is known as the constraints-led approach. And some of your listeners might have heard that before at coaching courses. Uh, maybe PE teachers might have taught them as well. So basically, if we think about a triangle and put our rugby player in the middle, there's three big factors that determine why or how that player is going to move. And the, the, the most important one is the individual themselves. So, you know, that's all your, how strong are they, how tall are they, fitness, 
um, injuries, experience, all those sorts of things. If something changes for that player, say they're coming back from injury, um, say that they are, are strong on one side of their body, and so they, yeah, all those things are going to make a difference for how that person moves. The other part of the triangle, and we have some control, you know, more or less, um, a little bit of control over some of those individual constraints, but you know, some of it's just inherent in, in their in their body um, size and dimensions. Obviously, we can work on strength and fitness and those sorts of things. Confidence is definitely one we can impact on the on the daily basis. Um, one of the other points of the triangle is the environment. So for rugby, that's really you know the the quality of the grass. So wet, dry, length of grass. Is it rainy? Is it windy? Are we under lights? Fog those sorts of things, so environmental conditions. And if something changes and suddenly we're out playing in really long, boggy grass, we're going to be doing different movements. Um, and then the other one, which is really where the coaches come in, is something called task constraints. So that is what happens if we change the number of players, what happens if we change the size of the area that they're in. Um, as Susan talked about, with you know, do we go narrow spaces versus wider spaces? Do we change the rules, i.e. you've got to be able to do a certain amount of passes before you can score? Um, and equipment, you know, so what happens if the ball's wet? What happens if it's, you know, um, different lengths, sprigs on, those sorts of things? Yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. really the, the bread and butter of coaches is, is a, how do we change some of those constraints to change the way the player starts to move? Yeah, that task part's... Um is a really important part I feel and Susan jump in um when or feel free to jump in whenever but we talk about that task a lot and what you just broke down the escape around like um around kind of the equipment and the, and the people and stuff like that and we use this the steps model that that got brought out a number of years ago and obviously there's that bit of work um that got done around that ecological dynamic um principles and it's and stuff like that and I think that's a really cool um, way to make your trainings more purposeful and, and dynamic that you talked about and it kind of encourage, can encourage um, different things to happen and all that type of stuff and so how do you use it Susan in your environment you mentioned recently around the tackle stuff but what are some mm -hmm. other things that you do to kind of really ramp up your training sessions to really get that really deep learning to, to take place for your players? I think one of the most interesting things that I've learned is that um, the repetition um, when they're doing it incorrectly doesn't mean that they're then going to all of a sudden learn how to do it correctly, the, like the actual movement pattern that you want to see. And until they can feel it, then they can't apply it. And I was like, oh, so all of the drills and, you know, like passing waves and, you know, even hitting the scrum machine or, or whatever it might be, you're actually just reinforcing the already poor habit. And I was like, oh, just, okay. So, um, you know, it, it's just, and something that I actually found quite hard was, okay, well, safety and say take scrum um a scrum learning because I'm a Fords coach and it's like, well, you know, we can't be going live straight away. And if these people have never scrummed before, they haven't even got shape. Like how are they going to keep safe? How do they know how to get into a good height? And, you know, all of those things. So 
what I was confused about quite early on is like, well, where does the where does the sort of rote learning type thing, the repetition, where does that come in? And so, of course, it does come in. You do need to start tackling on your knees and you do need to do all of those different things but and, and when to introduce contact. And so that's the interesting thing is that you progress out of that phase into the more dynamic and the more, you know, the, about the ecological psychology and you, what you're changing to adapt things. So my um, scrum over here, I'm looking after a men's um just just on scrum, which is really weird. I keep wanting to coach everything, but um, <laughs> just you know, Susan, you're just here for the scrum. Anyway, we we just kept um, <clears throat> when we we're putting pressure on, we weren't we weren't coming through, we weren't driving through and down, and you know, getting into a really strong strong position. So I just I just literally had like a um, some of those thick bands on on across the poles across the posts, and one of the guys was holding it at the other end, <clears throat> and they had to stay under that. And then we dropped it down and down. And if they felt it on their backs, they knew that they were starting to come up again. So, like, and, yeah, that's feeling something is um, is actually, that actually, it really blew my mind. Yeah. And that's, that's a cool point that you make is that we probably use effective questioning around what did you do there and they can, they can see what, or they can remember what they did there or... Um, you ask them what they see and they might be able to tell you what they saw and, and why they do it. But that feel part is a really key question that we probably leave on the table. Like there's a lot of learning left on the table if we don't ask that that feel question. And um, I, again, I was probably only exposed to that part of kind of my coaching a couple of months ago through a guy called Bruce Blair who just said he was, I asked him a question. I was like, how do you actually coach the best of the best like world-class athletes how could you coach rich moonga how or how could i go out there and coach rich moonga how to throw a 20 meter pass like he already knows how to do that like how do i challenge him and he's just like well there's not really too much you can challenge him with but it's that those things around maybe his, his kickings he's in a kicking slump and then it's those questions that you need to ask what does it feel like when the ball's leaving your foot well i just want you to search search with that that feeling and so he goes and does his 10 kicks and how many times did you feel it it's just like oh eight times uh, on those other two what were you feeling then and it's just like and then they could explain that part and that's where that kind of yeah how he explained that's how he, essentially how you coach world-class athletes when they're at that at that level and so um yeah that's a cool we we take yeah. out there with your scrum but it's definitely the same for all like all levels you know and um yeah, it's just an interesting challenge when you're head coaches. We just need to bang some scrums. We just we can't be mucking around and, you know, changing things and doing, you know, whatever. And I said, like, oh, geez, okay, I've got 10 minutes. What's How am I going to get these boys to stay down and, you know, trying to apply those things? Because, of course, I want to scrum the whole training, um, but they never let me. So, yeah. yeah, it's trying to be specific in what the players actually need and still achieve what your head coach is wanting you to achieve. Yeah, I oh, know that's cool. Well, it's a good example about the constraints there, and I was I really enjoyed listening to that, Susan, around them having the band and then feeling that band on their back if they um, as, as feedback. And I, and I think, um, I know Ricky, you're talking about questioning. I think we've got to be a little bit cautious about questioning because 
again, my ability to give you a verbal answer is not correlated to my ability to be able to do that movement. Yeah. Um, what we are very good at, though, is knowing if something felt different for us. And I think maybe that's where Bruce was trying to push you towards is, okay, did that feel the same or different? Did that feel easier or harder? Did it feel tighter or looser? I felt a bit tighter. But you might see as a coach go, yeah, that looked like a good movement. Okay, just repeat that same movement. So we're not getting into a big description about the biomechanics and what they're doing. We know all that as coaches, but we're just trying to go, like what Susan's talking about, is trying to create those feelings for the the, the scrum and go, right, now repeat that feeling again. Yeah. You know, or did that feel the same or not quite? Okay, not quite. Okay, we'll go and try that again. You know, and so, yeah, a lot of the using constraints is trying to get them to search for different sort of solutions um, because. Um, we're very good at humans at problem solving. So if we can put a problem there, like how are we going to get past these two defenders if I've only got two attackers or whatever? So you start to get into some deception and all these sorts of tricky plays because they're trying to solve the problem. Um, and you see that in force back, you know, like it's, it's all about trying to do trickier kicks for them to hopefully try and drop it or, you know, so they don't know where it's going to come from. So I guess how do coaches use constraints like if I was just thinking as a coach I would say if you're looking at your players and thinking what do I want them to change think why are they moving like that okay so that might give you the idea if you know why they're moving in a certain way then it becomes a bit more obvious about what constraints to put in place and then think okay if I could put a constraint in that that would force them to have to do another movement, what would that be? Because often a coach will tell, try and tell the players what to do. So say we look at passing again. I often hear coaches yelling out, fast hands, move it quicker. But that's it's like a coach yelling at them, not because ultimately you want to move your ball quicker because you've got defenders coming in at you quicker. That's the problem you're trying to solve is how do I move this ball on before I get tackled? Yeah. Um, and that's where you get all the different types of passes. It's not this lovely, beautiful spiral pass. It's just a pass that solves the problem at the time. And so then have lines and defense that come up quicker that causes them to have to move their hands faster. And that's a really cool point that you that you brought up um, there around that problem solving problem solving part. And I think that's probably um, also the potential pitfall for some coaches that they also haven't identified what the actual problem is. They know they they know the solution. The solution is I need to move the ball, use my use fast hands to move the ball quickly. But they actually don't know why, or they haven't figured out why they need to be doing doing that. And so that um we talked to Mike Cron a couple of weeks ago around like as players, sometimes are really good at looking, but not actually seeing what the problem is. So they can, they're looking in a hedge and they've got their eyes up and they know that they have to tackle red scrum cap, but they can't actually see what's actually happening either in behind or the way that red scrum caps shaped up to, he's shaped up to release the ball out the back rather than a tuck and carry type thing. And so that's really important as coaches that when we're, when we're observing something being done in front of us so if our, we've set up our, our drill or our activity actually identifying what are the key focuses that we are trying to get out of this this little piece and so if, if you, back to your example Susan around making sure that we're staying low in our push rather than kind of coming up to, and standing up that's a really 
really clear focus and and the constraint that you put on them around having the bands is that when they start feeling it on their back, that's when they know that they're they're standing up and sitting down. And having coaches being really clear on that focus is really important. What are the what do we want to walk away from this? What skill or behavior do we want our players to walk away with? Um, versus here's a drill that this fancy new drill that I've just seen down here at Rugby Park and I'm just going to drop it into drop it into my training session doesn't doesn't work or it's not fit for purpose right um, is is really key and stuff like that and what are some I guess skate just from from that kind of cool little um, piece around making sure that our questions um, aren't just kind of focusing on them being able to verbalize it back to us and in some of the research that you've done what are some other barriers um, individuals may face when trying to acquire new skills or coaches that's an interesting one and um, Susan touched on it a little bit around repeating movements that maybe aren't the ones that you want and so I guess um, whenever I work with coaches and actually I work across quite a lot of sports they always ask you know, when to intervene, right? When to change, and and I probably um, am a lot more hesitant about trying to change the way someone moves than I used to be. And I really only now look at if there's a, a danger element to it. And obviously in rugby, there's a few of those situations. So um, is it actually um, you know going to cause a problem or an injury? So absolutely, we have to jump in and, and get involved. And two, is it going to limit them further on? Right, so some people have some pretty weird ways of passing, but actually, um, is it going to be a problem further on as they get higher up the grades? If it is, um, then yes, we probably need to to try and help. But the the part is is that it's really hard to change the way someone's moving once they've really spent thousands of times <laughs> doing that movement, um, and it can be a really tricky thing for athletes. So I think about, say, Perry Wepu phenomenal at passing the ball from right to left so quick so accurate and probably from a, being a little fella he actually adjusted to passing from left to right by doing a counterclockwise movement so rather than pass the ball across my body the other way I just keep passing right to left but I just turn my body around to pass it out to my right you know and so actually he's just repeating the same movement to you know, the same solution to two different problems. He actually doesn't have the ability to be able to have lots of different solutions to different problems. And that's where, as we're watching our players, and sometimes I think particularly the early maturing kids who look like they're quite strong and, and, and really capable, are they actually just repeating the same solution to the problems in front of them? And because of their physical size, they're able to get away with that? Are they always stepping off, say, the same foot? Are they always doing the same sort of solution? And so you've got to appreciate that if I was, say, coaching Perry and he was and I made him pass it from left to right, the ball's probably going to drop short. It's probably going to go too high. It's not going to go there as fast and therefore his first five is going to get tackled. And all these negative things happen. And so that poor athlete's going, well, why would I do those things when I've actually got a different solution? And so it's been aware that there's that pressure on them and how do you get them exploring and learning different movements but in a, a lower level pressure and then slowly increasing the pressure because if something is getting a, 
is working, they're probably going to keep it. And so it's really hard for them because what you're telling me to do is going to feel weird. I might not be very successful. And to really acknowledge how tricky that can be for athletes to go through, that they're going to potentially fail and say, hey, you're probably going to feel like you can't quite get it right. It's going to feel really awkward because it's a new movement or a different movement and acknowledging that for the players rather than just trying to get them to suddenly do it in a real high-pressure environment, they'll probably go back to what they know. Um, and so that's where you, the skill of us as coaches is designing in a way, okay, how can they do different movements and, and slowly increasing the complexity and the transfer part of it. But, but do expect that they probably will get worse before they get better and they might get worse again and, and under pressure they might not still get it and so it can be a really long process for some athletes but if we don't spot it early enough when they're developing and realize hey little Jane here is just doing the same movement we need to really help her develop different movements or different solutions um, then that's the time really as, as they're coming through but trying to do it in the captain's run halfway <laughs> yeah. through the season or whatever is yeah it's going to be a bit trickier yeah, and and that's that stuff around like James Nottingham's learning pit, right? Like when we um, when we set up a challenge or we propose a challenge to to one of our athletes that, or like if we were doing pity, it's like, hey, pity, we need you to be able to pass left to right without turning without turning your body straight off the deck, and he that drop of performance, he's going to drop into that pit, but then it's trying to encourage them and, and stay with them, that trial and error, to then hopefully get to that eureka moment. And that's that, obviously, when hopefully that skill acquisition has actually happened part that's taken place, right? Can you... Yeah, absolutely. The trial and error, I can't you know, undervalue that enough. And we, we know um, how important that is. If someone can find their own solution, that's going back to this pressure part again, and they're more likely to repeat that solution under pressure, both physiologically and psychologically. If I just tell you how to move and you repeat that movement, you're less likely to be able to do that in those two situations than if you found your own solution. Yeah. I will say, though, that we've got to be careful that sometimes if you're just waiting for the player to find their own solution, they A, might not find it, B, they'll get very frustrated and lose confidence in you as a coach and again timing becomes an important part of the week or part of the season about when you're really trying to get them to to search for new ways and that's where constraints can be really powerful so I might if I've got a player who's always say pushing off my right foot and, and going left do I start them in a, a tight area running along the left hand try line with I can't they can't go that way now they've got to try and find a solution to cut in the other way or some of you who are listening might be PE teachers and remember Moston's teaching spectrum and there's like discovery learning where you might go try this way, try that way, try this other way. And you know very well that probably C is a better option. And they try all three and they go, oh, C was really good. And you're like, cool, keep doing C. That's going to be more powerful for them than you saying do C right from the start because they haven't found that solution themselves. That's a, that's a really cool point you make there around them hopefully finding their own solution because I think sometimes as as coaches we kind of get like a little bit of a superhero complex right like we need to try and fix every everybody and, and everything around it because knowledge is power and and all that type of stuff and we need to legitimize ourselves what are some things that you've managed to do Susan in your experience as a as a coach to kind of curve that superhero <laughs> 
the inner superhero. I don't know what you mean. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a scrum coach, so there's always something wrong that you need to tinker with. But oh, yeah, my gosh. I, I just I just said to have my coaching videoed for this skill acquisition paper. And like in my head, I'm like, okay, implicit learning and the players need to learn for themselves. And I'm designing the grid. And what was I doing the whole time? Walking. Yeah. This like, da 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 And I was slowing the grid down because they were constantly waiting for my reflections and, you know, things like that. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just a learner. <laughs> um, but uh, I, sometimes I do little... Um, I just started this young young fella that is playing first five league background. Great. It was such a talented young guy. But he, when he receives the ball, he drifts. And at first, like, you just can't do that. So, the, and because I don't know much about the backs, to be honest, but the, my um, backs coach was just, oh, yeah, he's so good, but he does this and this. And I said, okay. So I just went and stood behind him. <laughs> just, okay, every time you drift, um, I wasn't expecting it, but I say every time you drift, you know, that's one more beer for me. And like, obviously he's underage and like, it's not, it's not a thing, but it was funny at the time. And so now it's turned into, oh, what's my tally now? And so it's just not about him. Um, it's just about him being conscious of it. I think more so. Yeah. Um, and so now he's saying, oh, every time I do it right, that means it's one off my tally. I said, yeah, okay. Now I'll end up having to buy you soft drinks all, all, all um, season. That's fine. But it's, I don't know if it was a great solution or anything like that, but it was just so, something a little bit of fun. And because we're in season, so it's hard for him to change and he's confident doing what he's doing. But once he straightens, he sees holes and he just goes. So... I think that it's working in a little way. So without knowing rugby much, you're not wanting him to drift because you're wanting him to go straight. If you put a constraint in like there's some cones, I don't know, 10 metres ahead of him, once he's got, you know, once he's got the, well, how fast can you get the ball from half back to him to over those cones? Like you could do like a time thing, like he's trying to race the clock, right? Because if he starts to drift... And he's got mm -hmm. to probably come in through a gate is the other potential one you could do. So not only is there a line he's got to cross in 10 metres, but potentially there might be, if you can get in, cross these cones in a certain space, i.e. a straight one. I don't know, it'd be interesting to see how he self-organises to try and find a solution to go, actually, there's not an advantage for me to drift because it's going to take longer or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, mm -hmm. that's a very good idea. <laughs> Or you just stand beside him, like rather than behind him, do you just stand beside him so you run he walks, yeah, exactly. he walks into you? Yeah, and I have done yeah, and he hits you. Yeah, like one of the young one of the other boys was he was so he was loading back you know behind him so much that he was losing the effectiveness. So I, I literally stood beside him where he needed to, you know, he needed to run through and then just aim at the post. And so yeah, I did put a physical constraint in that way as well. So not just bribing with um penalties. <laughs> Inventors. But I guess the other thing about constraints for our listeners is to know when to remove it because what we don't want potentially is this young fella or or a girl, you know, who's first five only looking at the straight option. Like sometimes they can almost conform to the constraint that they think, oh, okay, I only have to look forward now and therefore they miss potentially another option. But sometimes it's just to create that awareness for them. Mm. Um, or you could draw a little picture and go, hey, every time you cross these are the, on the pictures is where you went. You know, let's see if we 
we can get a few more where you're coming across the pitch a little bit more. Because remember that learning is not going from like one step to like another big step. There's going to be signs that they're getting better. So maybe a couple of his runs were a bit more straighter. That's still a good sign that they're starting to learn. Yeah, that that's really cool. And and what really awesome that what just happened there was the design or the build of a of a new activity or a new constraint around kind of fixing a problem. Because a lot of coaches struggle with that part, right? That's and that's probably us as coaches around how do you get that mindset around being able to build your own drills? Because we'll jump on rugby toolbox, um, which is a cool better better say that it's a cool re we resource. Um, but it is it is an awesome, awesome resource to get inspiration and ideas from. But then what you've just done, skate around have you thought about creating gates and putting a cone that's 10 metres away and you, like just on the fly there? How do coaches, well, what would you say to coaches to kind of encourage them to start toggling with their own ideas and their own knowledge to design stuff that is best fit for them and their team rather than someone else in a, almost a fake environment? Yeah, and I guess it goes to your point before about someone just dropping in an activity that they've seen someone do. And our job as coaches is not to keep, we're not like um, holiday program teachers, right? Keep people just busy, happy, good. You know, like our job is to try and make them better players. So I would, when I look at constraints, I think when I, when I do this particular game or activity or constraint, what will the players have to do to be successful in that constraints so with my one there about you know put a 10 meter line and say how long can you you know, you know beat the clock eventually that first five is going to have to run straight to get the fastest time because you know if we think okay if, if, they, if they're going through what will they problem solve to what will they probably come up with and so our job is to try and think of okay how do we design stuff that gets them to search for that solution and that's where we've got to be careful sometimes that they don't um find a solution that wasn't quite what we were looking for. So say sometimes this player might now come off the line quicker to catch the ball earlier and still drift to try and beat the clock or something like that. So that's where we've got to have that coach's eye of going, yes, they've adapted, but actually they've adapted to not quite what I was looking for. They've got a faster time, but they're still drifting. They've kind of cheated their way through. Um, so, yeah, I'd be thinking, okay, if I change something, what are they going to likely to have to do? So um, say in, uh, a netball example, if we were playing a game of trying to get the ball from one end to a to another, people are probably going to start to lob that ball, right? Because that's the fastest and most efficient way, especially if I've got some strong players. They'll just take all the thirds out and all that sort of jazz about netball. But the old, they're just going to have to heave it a long way. We'll get it down there. But if I took that no overhead pass out, suddenly they're going to have to go, oh, I'm going to have to come forward to get the ball now. Well, I'm going to have to do a bounce pass. Like, that'll be the solutions that they'll have to find. Yeah, and that's and I go cool because that's what I was wanting them to have to do, you know. So think what are, what's causing the problem, but then also think okay, if I did this activity, what would be the problem solving that they would do and the outcome they'd probably move to. Yeah, I know. That. I can just add in to that if that's okay. Like one of the key learnings for me um, after listening to to skate and her lectures and things was that you know the game space work is just so great but we actually have to know the movement that we want 
them to achieve. And, and I was like, oh, oh, shucks, okay. Like, yeah, I've got a six foot, six foot eight lock and now I've got a, you know, a five foot um, hooker. The basic principles of tackling is the same, like body height, leg drive, punch and wrap. It's all the same. But those two people are going to do it differently. And so how do I now create a movement or, or, or a structure to then have them both executing like that um, for their size and for their ability? So for me, the key point was what movement pattern do I still want to see? Yeah. And that's, that's so cool that what you've just said there around because at times we play games for game six, right? Like we'll go to, if, even if we look at our small blacks, um, a lot of our small blacks coaches generally will go out there and we'll be running a session. It's like, how many of you guys play ball rush at the end of end of training as a, as a reward? And they'll all put their hand up and they're just like, yeah, it's just a, a fun game for them to, to them to finish off a, a cool training because they deserved it because they didn't play around as much during training. And you're like, well, and within bull rush, there's a lot of, a lot of learning taking place. Like we, we just talked around that kind of those ad hoc games around like force back and there's some cool learning and that's our responsibility as a coaching going, okay, well they're playing bull rush, but yet they're probably going to be juicy pulling or they're going to be reaching out and scragging them down on the ground. And they're like, is that the effective tackling that you want to happen on Saturday? And if this is your last training, they're probably going to remember the last thing or it's likely the players are going to remember the last thing that they did on at training and if it was ball rush and that's how they got a player down and was effective they're probably going to be be doing it so that that having games for game six isn't um isn't isn't it's great for a fun enjoyment little energizer but still there's a lot of learning getting left on the table if we're just doing that part so what can we do with ball rush to make it more of a a fun a fun game but a learning exercise or that repetitive kind of movement exercise so that we can see the transferable learning starting to take place and probably our role as a coach is obviously seeing what's actually happening in front of us um yeah i guess probably before we jump into um I, i'm about to drop this on you guys now but we're going to jump into a quick fire segment but um what is one kind of <laughs> one final um I guess bit of advice or um takeaway that our coaches should um take from today's conversation around skill acquisition? Um probably for me, I haven't touched on it much other than my intro, is yes, the, the design of your session like we we are game designers learning designers as coaches you know there's so much in the design of it but actually the language you use um with the players you know show me another way how can you do that you know all that encouragement to explore and try will get them to be adaptive if we're only rewarding moving in a certain way then they're going to become quite limited in what they do so you can design great activities but actually your language and your body language and your encouragement you know like that pass might have been dropped but actually that was a spot on well spotted pass the gap was there was almost on that's the language following up rather than hey drop ball down we go for five press-ups or something you know like 
it's got to match. If you're trying to get them to be adaptive and you design these really cool constraints, expect them to make mistakes, expect them to be a bit slow sometimes, and then they'll suddenly take off and, and get in there. So there's a pedagogy around the game design. And that's just acknowledging that you're seeing that learning's taking place, right? And so they're just like, oh, okay, well, I just got to keep persevering and I'm going to, that's next time I see it, I'm going to be able to execute. Yeah, then I'm going to put it through a little bit faster or harder. But if if I don't get those chances to practice that stuff, yeah, you know, it's not really going to happen. I know that's cool. And for you, Susan, what's one bit, one more bit of advice you'd, you'd give our listeners in around toggling with this this concept of skill acquisition and stuff? Um, I don't, I don't know. If I had an hour to think about it, I might be able to come up with a good you know, <laughs> to say. But I think. Well, just recently for me, it's about stop talking. And uh, the other thing Bruce Blair talks to me all about, all the time about is um, how do you know you're right? And so if I'm constantly talking and I'm telling people to do this or that, and I, you know, how do I actually know that I'm doing the right thing um, for my athletes? And um, so I guess from a general perspective it's just about just be curious and challenge yourself to do something not the way that you were coached or taught yourself yeah and see what happens i know that's that's awesome um so we'll jump into our quick fire segment so you guys are inviting three people to dinner who are they and what are you cooking Skate, do you want to Chris would be high up on my list. I I would love to spend more time with him. I think he's he, the way he sets up scenarios and understands the game and and from a constraints perspective, um, yeah, just I I I really uh, I really rate him as a coach. Uh, but again, he's got a lot of his, his experience from informal learning, right? So yeah. anyway, who is that again? Um, Wayne Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd probably cook a curry. I'm trying to think of my other two people. Like I'd love to have Barack Obama at the table. He'd be real interesting, or, or his wife probably. Um, yeah, I'd have to think on the third one. Yeah. Here you go, Susan. Uh, um, Muhammad Ali. Like yeah. I just love the way he thinks, and it's just like man, he was. He was ahead of his time, and not not just his skill, um, but Muhammad Ali for sure. Mum, because she passed away a while ago, so it'd be good to have a chat. Yeah. Um, I think probably, um, I, know, I know it's going to sound weird, but Rocky Balboa, like, <laughs> like uh, Sylvester. The character or Sylvester? No, no, the, the actual, no, the oh. actual move, the character. Yeah. Um, because I just love... Obviously, Sly's, you know, writing the words and, and things behind what he's saying, but, um, you know, just getting, you know, knocked down and getting back up. And, like, there's just a lot of good, solid stuff in there that would just be great um, to listen to. So that's a bit odd, eh? Like, that just popped in my head. Um, and you just can't beat a roast. So yeah. that would be it with gravy and mashed potatoes and um, roast potatoes and, you know, all that good stuff as well, probably. Might be because it's like negative six here at the moment and I'm craving comfort food. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's. Oh, no, that's fair enough. And who was your third one, Skate? 
Oh God, I was still delivering. I was like, I'm starting to read the Miranda book at the moment for something like how did I should be quite funny to have at the table or yeah. Adele. Um or Jacinda it would be interesting. Yeah, probably be a strong female in there. No, that's that's cool. And uh what is one um of your favorite sporting memories? So and that's a person it can be a personal memory as well. I've got one that I always talk about around moments and yeah. um I was playing my first trial in 1999. <laughs> I'm hoping most of your coaches were alive then because um, your athletes probably weren't. But um, uh, it was, um, I think it was at Hopu Hopu. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, um, all, all the play had gone to the left and Monique Rivana, the halfback, she's amazing. And, and I was like, I must have got up a out of a rut last and I was like, oh, money, money. And so she gave it to me and I sprinted. I'll say it's from halfway. It probably wasn't, but, you know, and, and got the try in the corner. And and um, my after I was selected, the coach said to me, well, after that, it was pretty, pretty much yours to, to lose sort of sort of thing. That my um, my uh, selection at, at um, for the Black Ferns. But I spoke after to Moni about it and she said, oh, yeah, I only gave it to you because that's how um, – the whistle wall calls. So she, if she knew it was me, she probably wouldn't have given it to me. But um, but that's just about taking opportunities, right? And so my whole rugby career, all my coaching, has been exactly the same about just being doing the best you can to be prepared, but take the opportunity when it comes because you just never know where it's going to lead you. That's an awesome message. Cool story. Thanks for sharing that. And for you, Skate. Oh, probably be a rowing one. I'm looking between Emma Twig winning the gold at Tokyo after seven tries. Um, yeah. But probably a crew I coached in the UK, um, a woman's crew who weren't supposed to do very well. I only had them for a month, a university crew. And I went about quite a different approach with them because they were all you know, young 20-year-olds. I probably wasn't that much older than them. Um, but just really trying to get them to take ownership over their boat. And we would have chats after every race and they qualified for Henley. They weren't supposed to and they went... So the top 32 women's boats make that, that race. And then we got all the way through to the final, the top two. And just every time after the, the race is right, what do you want to change different? What went well? And so I was more of a really a facilitator and that great experience for them. They came second in the end, but they were just they shouldn't have even been in the top 16 probably. So it's yeah. pleasing to see. I know that's that's an awesome, awesome memory. And for you guys, who's a coach, mentor, or teacher that's had the biggest impact on you? Probably a, a lecturer here at UC who's, we've had an interesting crossing of paths, Lynn Kidman, the original Athlete Centre Coaching um, author. So she was my lecturer here when I was at UC what, 25 years ago, and then we worked together in the UK and then taught together at AUT and now she's retired but just um, always um, just passionate about about athlete-centred coaching really and around the whole learning environment for them so less on the skill side but there's a lot of crossover yeah that's a really hard one eh because I've been so fortunate to have amazing um, you know mentors and coaches that I've looked up to as a player and as and as the um as a coach myself and I'm getting such amazing support from 
the core knowledge group and through Bruce Blair and um yeah I think the, so Bulldog was a I can't remember his proper name. It's gonna <laughs> growl me later. I, I hadn't made you know black ferns or anything as a player then and he was coaching um the player plenty women's side and I'd never met him before. We just sort of started chatting and, and he just said, Suze, you just you've just got to work harder than anybody else. You know, Christmas Day you're running. Day after day after the game you're running. You know, you just need to know that and that's probably where my my um mindset to you know to be fitter than anybody else so they couldn't leave me out came from. So as a coach now, I'm trying to find that same conscientiousness <laughs> to my study and prep and things. But, um, you know, that's probably a key. That was a key conversation at the Red Iguana Bar in, um, <laughs> in downtown Whangarei in yeah. probably 1995 or six or something. Oh no, that's that's awesome. And what's one bit of advice you'd give yourself starting out on your coaching career again or your coaching journey? I think probably more and trust the process. I think early on in my coaching, I was probably more preoccupied by the results and yeah, be thinking that it, it's it can be um, a long process and actually doing well results wise doesn't you don't always know why that happened. I often learn more from the from the failures, but yeah, um, that's a good question actually. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's a bit like that whole um, Bill Walsh's book, like the school will take care of itself if you if you trust the process. So, which is which is real cool. And for you, Susan, I think it would probably be to trust my intuition um, a lot more. I think you know, coming that you think. People say it all the time. You think you're supposed to know everything. And <clears throat> through the learning that I've, I've been doing, it's realizing that I actually did know it. I just didn't know why. So trusting my gut is probably, um, yeah, the key thing I'd say to myself. Yeah, I know. Cool. And we also, I love this question because it kind of helps kind of spark some ideas for our coaches listening in but what is one what would be your go-to activity um or drill that you'd do if you'd had you've got training tonight what would be your go-to well that's the it depends um <laughs> solution isn't it I, I love uneven games um you know 87 or you know whatever it is because the players you know, they need to get into some attacking shape. They haven't got exactly the people that they need. You know, they're under-resourced potentially and they still make um, the solutions for themselves, so problem-solving. So, yeah, uneven games is a go-to for me for sure. Awesome. Yeah, um, I'm, I had pretty, pretty football coaching this week, soccer. Um, it, would always, it would always have to be there's, there's people in that environment. So they wouldn't ever be doing something by themselves. It's got to be dynamic and they have to do it in consideration for other people. Yeah. Uh, even if it's quite implicitly and not been under attack, but they have to make those considerations. Yeah, cool. Um, and this is our last question. What does being a coach mean to you? 
Well, you've got a lot of responsibility, you know. I think about the 16 girls in the football team, you know, like it's about how they all improve um, and the responsibility you have for that, um, A, keeping them as a team, but B, that they that they all move along that continuum of improvement. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's a similar sort of sense, the weight of that responsibility is high, but I think the whole reason that I coach is to help uh, that one player at that one time that it may be rugby related and it may, or it may not be. So creating the environment, the, the relationships, getting to know people, having some fun and um, going and smacking people. <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. Like, like I get to do that through rugby. I probably would do that in normal, not the smacking part. <laughs> um, I would probably do that in, in you know, and well, I know I do. I do it in normal life as well. So it's just, you know, it's just such a privilege to get to know. I always fall in love with all my teams and, you know, things like that. I'm still, you know, in touch with players from years ago. So it's just, yeah, it's just a real it's a real privilege to even just be in their lives, really. Oh, no, that's, that's awesome. Um, team, thanks so much for for jumping on today and um, kind of sharing your your knowledge and experience with, with our coaches. I know I've been furiously writing down notes that I can barely read because I've been writing too fast, but uh, it's been a wicked conversation, um, and I can tell that both of you, both of you are really... I guess, passionate about what you guys do and just around, it's cool to hear how passionate you are around helping others and, um, and so that they can Thanks, Ricky. About doing. Oh, I really appreciate your opportunity. Thank you so much. Now, that was an awesome conversation with both Sarah, Kate and, and Susan and and you probably would have heard me say skate throughout the throughout the podcast and so that was just referring to Sarah, Kate, but what was awesome around that conversation what I really loved about it was just how we got kind of the research and the literature side of things from from skate but then we got the practical um trial and error side from from Susan how she's how she implements it and in the environments that she's coaching coaching in or has been coaching coaching in and kind of some key takeaways for me was around making sure that what we're designing and kind of how um, how skate puts it how do, around how do we design the learning environment and making sure that we're being adaptive or that it's being being adaptive or allowing the players to be adaptive because we can't just do repeat movement um, because if we do repeat movement then that transfer of skill or how slow it is when it becomes to that transfer of skill so making sure that, that it's being adaptive that we're putting in constraints or we're putting in things that allows transfer of skill to happen. And when we see it, we acknowledge it. Um, I just think that's really, really cool. She took us through that triad around skill acquisition as well. Um, and I think the, what I loved about Susan and what she was talking about was just, yeah, everything that she does or that is really thought through. And so She's really passionate, obviously, around making sure that what they're doing is best for the athlete to get better. And so that purposeful practice stuff is really is really key. 
So making sure that there's there's meaning and purpose behind it. We're not doing games for game sakes because that's just not going to really help anybody. But and when we do do games that we're identifying the behaviors and the skill or the focus that we're trying to get out of it, um, which was really awesome. And we had an even better kind of 15, 20 minute conversation after we hit record of this podcast, which was really cool. And and actually what came out of that conversation um, led by Skate was that around that designing of of a training session or a designing of a constraints or, or a drill or activity um, can actually be quite difficult or quite daunting, especially if you're trying to get some some outcomes. And so what we're going to do is we're going to catch up in, in another wee while. Um, so when you're hearing to this, if you're listening to this, what I want you to do is if you if you've got any challenges at the moment around skill acquisition, around some type of behaviors that you want to try and change or, or a skill that you want your players to learn, if you can email that through to me, so ricky.tahiri at crfu.co.nz. So Ricky spelt R-I-K-I dot Tahiri T-A-H-E-R-E at crfu.co.nz email me through what challenge that you're having um, at the moment around uh, a behavior or a skill that you're trying to get your players to learn. And what we'll do is we'll we'll co- collect all this feedback or all these challenges, and then we're going to have another catch-up um, again with, with Sarah and Sarah Kate and Susan around um, what we can do to design um, based on or some drills or activities designed around the challenges that you're you're trying to improve at the moment. So I think that was a really cool um, cool way to do a follow-up session. So um, yeah, fire them through. If this is a podcast that you really loved and you know that there's, there's a coach or someone that you're connected with that will enjoy this, please uh, share it with them, chuck it on the WhatsApp group or, or whatever you do there. Um, and if you could leave us a rating and some feedback, uh, would be epic as well uh, just so that we can kind of keep growing the show and if there's any areas of of coaching you're you're uncertain about again please feel free drop me an email because um, it's all about making sure that you're I guess you're you're constantly learning and um, and that it's purposeful for you guys so uh, thanks again for listening this is a cool conversation <laughs>